0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class
1: from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Dr. Raphael Lemkin, and you'll see his name spelled a number of different ways because he was originally from Poland, and you'll see him described as the person who coined the term genocide, he did do that, but his contributions went way, way beyond just coining a new word. He was really the driving force behind the existence of the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. This was something that he pursued with a really single-minded determination for years. A lot of the time, he had no official backing, no funding, and not even enough to eat, He had support from other people and organizations to get all this done, but he was the one who did most of the rallying of that support himself, usually at the expense of his own health and well-being.
0: And Raphael Lemkin coined the word genocide in 1944, but of course the practice of genocide may be as old as humanity. One possible explanation for the extinction of the Neanderthals is that they were deliberately and systematically killed by humans. In terms of what's documented in the historical record, one of the earliest events that could be described as genocide took place in 416 BCE during the Peloponnesian War. Athens lay siege to the island of Milos, which was neutral but more sympathetic towards Sparta. When Milos surrendered, the Athenians killed all of the men and sold the women and children into slavery.
1: Many, many instances of genocide followed after that all over the world. Elements of European colonization of the Americas starting in the 16th century and Cromwell's conquest of Ireland in the 17th century, the Qing Dynasty's extermination of the Zunghar people in the 18th century, and the scramble for Africa in the 19th century have all been described as genocide. The
0: idea that international law should protect minorities and other vulnerable people is also much older than the term genocide. In Europe, that idea goes back at least as far as the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Among other provisions, the Peace of Westphalia formalized the idea of Europe as a collection of sovereign states and outlined freedoms and protections for religious minorities in those states.
1: In other words, by the time Raphael Lemkin was born on June 24th, 1900, genocide had existed for millennia, and the idea that international law should protect minorities, that idea had existed for centuries. The language that we use to describe it today just didn't exist yet.
0: Lemkin was born on a farm outside of Volkowisk, which was then in Poland. Later, that became part of Russia, and it is now in what is Belarus. The farm was about 14 miles or 23 kilometers from town in a relatively remote area. The farm itself was adjacent to a forest and a lake. Lemkin was the middle of three brothers, although his young brother died in 1918 during the flu pandemic.
1: He spent most of his boyhood playing and doing chores on the farm and being taught by his mother, Bella, who was an artist and an intellectual. And he was aware of the concept of oppression from a really early age. It was illegal for Jews to own or live on farms. So in addition to paying the rent on the farm, Raphael's father Joseph had to bribe the local police for them to be allowed to stay there.
0: He was also aware that this oppression was not just about laws and money. In 1906, the Russian Imperial Army carried out a pogrom against the Jewish community of Bialystok, about 55 miles or 90 kilometers away. And at least 70 people were killed and as many as 100 injured.
1: This awareness of persecution and of people being harmed by those who might have been charged with helping them continued to grow as Raphael got older, when he was 11, he read the novel Quo Vadis, a narrative in the time of Nero, and one of the themes was Nero's persecution of Christians in ancient Rome. He became really fixated on this whole idea, and he started learning more and more about similarly violent and oppressive events in history and about the people who were the victims of those events.
0: Eventually, the Lemkin family moved into Volkolvisk to give Raphael and his brother more educational opportunities. Bella Lemkin was described as brilliant, but she and her husband wanted their children to have a broader education than she could give them on her own. While they were living there, Raphael continued to have firsthand experience with anti-Semitism and oppression, especially after the German army occupied Volkowitsk in 1915.
1: From the time he was young, Limkin demonstrated an incredible aptitude for languages. When he entered the University of Heidelberg and Lvov, he already knew seven of them. By the end of his life, he would know 12 different languages. He decided to major in philology, which combines literature, history, and linguistics.
0: I am very envious of his language skills. But, Me too. Uh, in 1921, Lemkin changed his major to law. And to understand why he did that, we actually need to back up for a moment and talk about the Armenian genocide. Although the consensus among historians is that what happened constitutes genocide, the governments of Turkey and Azerbaijan disagree. They don't necessarily deny that there were massacres, but they maintain that this was simply the unfortunate consequence of brutal and bloody war, rather than a planned attempt to exterminate a people. The Armenian Genocide has been on our list for a full episode for a very long time, but it is a huge and complex topic, uh, so we are not sure when exactly that will happen. So uh, this is the very basic version.
1: Armenians are a linguistic and ethnic group who live today primarily in Armenia, but who historically have lived in a much larger region of the Caucasus Mountains, including what's now northeastern Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. In the early 20th century, all of this was part of the Ottoman Empire. And in 1915, the Ottoman Empire massacred an estimated 1.5 million Armenians. The Armenians were predominantly
0: Christian, and the Ottoman Empire was Muslim. But this was not only about religion. In the late 19th century, Armenians had started developing a national identity. The Ottoman Empire viewed this growing sense of an Armenian nation as a threat. Although several of Europe's great powers saw a need to try to protect the Armenian people, these efforts had the opposite of the intended effect— the Ottoman Empire cracked down on Armenians, carrying out a series of pogroms between 1894 and 1896. And at this point, it wasn't so much about destroying the Armenians as it was about reestablishing the dominance of the Ottoman Empire in the area.
1: Then in 1908, members of the Young Turk Movement came to power in the Ottoman Empire and made a short-lived effort to modernize and to offer some protections to its minority populations. But all of that fell away during the Balkan Wars and World War I, especially after the Ottoman Empire joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. In
0: 1915, Russia defeated the Ottoman army at the Battle of Sarakamish. Afterward, Armenians became a scapegoat, with Ottoman officials blaming the loss on Armenians who had joined the Russian side. And there were Armenians who did side with the Russians, but this whole thing was used as grounds for violent suppression of the Armenians as a whole.
1: In April of 1915, Armenian intellectuals and political leaders were rounded up and later executed. The next months were marked with a systematic deportation effort, concentration camps, death marches, massacres, and sexual violence against women. Many of the people who survived the direct violence later on died of exhaustion or starved to death.
0: These events were known to the international community at the time. On May 24, 1915, France, Russia, and Great Britain issued a joint declaration, which said in part, quote, for about a month, the Kurd and Turkish population of Armenia has been massacring Armenians with the connivance and often assistance of Ottoman authorities. And that statement went on to say, quote, In view of these new crimes of Turkey against humanity and civilization the Allied governments announced publicly to the Sublime Porte that they will hold personally responsible for these crimes all members of the Ottoman government and those of their agents who are implicated in such massacres.
1: Then after the war was over, the Central Powers signed the Treaty of Sev, which included a provision for determining who had been responsible for the massacre of Armenians and who then bringing those people to justice. But the new Turkish government that arose after the war rejected that treaty, and its 1923 replacement included no such provision. Rafael
0: Lemkin was about to turn 15 when all of this started. But it was six years later that a connected event really drew his attention to it and changed the focus of his life. And we're going to talk about that after we first have a sponsor break. Explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: On March 15th, 1921, while Raphael Lemkin was in college, An Armenian named Sohoman Talirian assassinated Mehmed Talat, who was also known as Talat Pasha, the Ottoman minister of the interior. Talat was widely recognized as the architect of the massacres that had taken place in 1915, and Talirian's family had been killed in those massacres. When he shot the Ottoman minister, he reportedly said, This is for my mother.
0: Tellurian was put on trial the following June, and this trial struck Lemkin as deeply incongruous. Talat had not faced trial for the massacres in any way. International laws governing the rules of war and human rights didn't apply because the massacres were committed by the Ottoman Empire in its own sovereign territory, not against another sovereign nation's people. But Tellurian, whose crime was on a far smaller scale, was being tried.
1: When discussing this trial in class, Lemkin noted this discrepancy, saying, quote, it is a crime for Tellurian to kill a man, but it is not a crime for his oppressor to kill more than a million men. He also noted that the idea of national sovereignty should not give a nation the right to kill its own people with impunity.
0: This incident inspired Lemkin to change his major to law so that he could work toward an international law that would apply to what the Armenians had faced. He graduated with a doctorate in law in 1926.
1: Another similar assassination took place in Paris that same year, and that reinforced Limkin's commitment to advocate for an international law against genocide. This time, Shalom Schwartzbard assassinated Ukrainian official Simon Petliura, who was believed to be responsible for a series of pogroms in which Schwartzbard's parents had been killed. Once again, an individual person was being tried for a much smaller crime than the ones committed by the person he had killed, and the person he had killed was not tried for those crimes at all. Both Telerian and Schwarzbard were ultimately acquitted with their defenses focusing on the mental trauma that they had each been through. After
0: graduating, Lemkin moved to Warsaw and got a position working as a prosecutor. He started writing books about international law, human rights, and genocide, although he wasn't yet using that term. He wrote at a rate of about a book every year. And in 1933, he had the opportunity to make his first real effort at advocating for a law at the international level. He was invited to make a presentation at the League of Nations conference in Madrid.
1: The paper that he wrote leading up to this conference included his definitions for two different but related crimes. One he called barbarity, and this was a crime against people, especially acts of extermination because of ethnic, religious, or social identity. The other crime he called vandalism Vandalism was a crime against a people's cultural heritage, and it included things like the destruction of monuments and the outlawing of native languages. He wanted to address both the physical presence of a group, that group's very existence, and the group's history and spiritual life. But after he submitted
0: his paper, he got a phone call telling him that he was no longer invited to attend the conference in person. An anti-Semitic newspaper in Poland had written a scathing response to Lemkin's paper, criticizing him for focusing on the protection of Jews and not of the Polish population as a whole. Afterward, the Minister of Justice decided that Lemkin should not attend the conference. And although his paper was discussed without his personally being there, it didn't lead to any meaningful action. In the face of all this criticism, Lemkin also had to resign as a prosecutor, and he went into private law practice instead.
1: A few years later, on August 22, 1939, Adolf Hitler gave a speech to his chief commanders at his home in Ober It said, in part, quote, "...our strength lies in our quickness and in our brutality. Genghis Khan has sent millions of women and children into death knowingly and with a light heart." History sees in him only the great founder of states. As to what weak Western European civilization asserts about me, that is of no account. I have given the command, and I shall shoot everyone who utters one word of criticism for the goal to be obtained in the war is not that of reaching certain lines, but of physically demolishing the opponent." And so for the present, only in the East, I have put my death head formations in place with the command relentlessly and without compassion to send into death many women and children of Polish origin and language. Only thus can we gain the living space that we need, who, after all, is today speaking about the destruction of the Armenians."
0: There is some debate about whether the speech included that last sentence, because some of the documents recording the speech do not include it, and a primary one that does include it came from an anonymous source. But regardless, less than two weeks later, on September 1st, Hitler invaded Poland and started carrying out the extermination that he had described in the speech.
1: At that point, Raphael Lemkin was still living in Warsaw. And on September 6th, just ahead of German troops' arrival there, he tried to escape the city by train. But the train that he was on was bombed, leading him and some of the other survivors to take refuge in the woods. He and a few other men traveled together and tried to evade German troops, although some of them were killed in another bombing not long afterward.
0: Over the next two months, Lemkin traveled with a continually changing group of refugees. Few of them had any provisions with them, so they had to forage for food, sometimes stealing from crops in the fields or occasionally getting help from sympathetic people that they met. As often as he could, he encouraged people to escape. Based on Mein Kampf and other writings, Lemkin knew that Hitler was planning an extermination campaign, much different from the typical perils of warfare that the people he met often thought that they could survive.
1: During these weeks when he was in flight, Lemkin's ultimate goal was to get to Lithuania, which was, at that moment, neutral, and he thought he could escape from there. But he also wanted to get to his parents and try to convince them to go as well. He finally got to Volkovysk by train, disguising himself as a Russian peasant, including trading in his expensive eyeglass frames for a cheaper pair so that they would not raise suspicions. He spent two days with his parents in late 1939, but he couldn't convince them to leave.
0: Lemkin finally got to Lithuania in early 1940. His weeks-long flight from the Germans prompted him to give up the idea of going back to being a private lawyer and instead to focus on his work in education and actively trying to get the international community to stop such abuses. He got in touch with people he knew in Sweden and the United States, trying to get a visa so he could get to a safer location and continue his work from there.
1: He got an appointment teaching law at the University of Stockholm, and while he was there, he worked with the Swedish Foreign Ministry to gather information about human rights abuses in places where Sweden had embassies and consulates. One of their findings was that Germany was distributing rations in occupied territory based on nationality, so Germans were getting 97% rations, Dutch people were getting 95%, The numbers got continually smaller, down to Greeks who were getting 38% rations and Jews who got 20%, which was not enough to sustain life.
0: By 1941, other parts of the world were becoming more aware of what the Nazi regime was doing. On August 24th, Winston Churchill gave an address in which he said, quote, As his armies advance, whole districts are being exterminated. Scores of thousands, literally scores of thousands of executions in cold blood are being perpetrated by the German police troops upon the Russian patriots who defend their native soil. Since the Mongol invasions of Europe in the 16th century, there has never been methodical, merciless butchery on such a scale or approaching such a scale. And this is but the beginning. Famine and pestilence have yet to follow in the bloody ruts of Hitler's tanks. We are in the presence of a crime without a name.
1: That same year, Lemkin got an appointment teaching law at Duke University thanks to his colleague Malcolm McDermott. He traveled to the United States via Russia and Japan, arriving in Seattle on April 18, 1941. When he got to Durham, North Carolina, he was asked to give an address on his very first evening there. And part of his topic was Hitler's plan of exterminating entire peoples in the territory that Germany was occupying.
0: This was the first of many attempts to educate the people around him on what Hitler was planning and doing. In 1942, Lemkin was appointed chief consultant to the Board of Economic Warfare in Washington, D.C. And his first task there was to educate his colleagues about Hitler's planned exterminations. He also wrote to President Franklin D. Roosevelt in a call for action.
1: As he threw himself into this work, Lemkin's health started to suffer. High blood pressure ran in his family, but stress and exhaustion were really making it worse. And as we alluded to at the top of
0: the episode, Lemkin finally coined the term genocide in 1944. And we're going to talk about that after we have a little sponsor break.
1: In 1944, Raphael Lemkin published the 712-page book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, Laws of Occupation, Analysis of Government, Proposals for Redress. This book documented conditions in Europe and finally named the crime that Roosevelt had referenced in that 1941 address we read from earlier. Lemkin wrote, quote, by genocide, we mean the destruction of a nation or of an ethnic group. This new word, coined by the author to denote an old practice in its modern development, is made from the ancient Greek word genos, race, tribe, and the Latin side, killing.
0: He went on to explain, quote, Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation, except when accomplished by mass killings of all members of a nation. It is intended, rather, to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. Genocide is directed against the national group as an entity, and the actions involved are directed against individuals, not in their individual capacity, but as members of the national group.
1: He also explained how genocide happens this way, quote, Genocide has two phases. One, destruction of the national pattern of the oppressed group. The other, the imposition of the national pattern of the oppressor. This imposition, in turn, may be made upon the oppressed population, which is allowed to remain, or upon the territory alone after removal of the population and the colonization of the area by the oppressor's own nationals. By
0: this point, Lemkin had started working as an advisor to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson. After World War II, Jackson was the U.S. Chief Prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, and Lemkin advised him in that role as well. Genocide was included in the indictments at Nuremberg, but to Lemkin's disappointment, not in the final judgment. The judgment itself also pertained to only actions that happened during wartime, not to atrocities that Germany had carried out before the war officially began.
1: On top of that disappointment, While he was in Nuremberg for the trials, Lemkin learned that nearly his entire family had been killed by Nazis, including his parents. At least 49 of his relatives were killed with only his brother and his brother's family surviving.
0: Not long after the end of the Nuremberg trials, Lemkin started planning to introduce a resolution on genocide at the United Nations. He went to the U.N. to, quote, enter into an international treaty which would formulate genocide as an international crime, providing for its prevention and punishment in time of peace and war. And this required multiple steps. So first, he needed to convince multiple nations to support a resolution calling for the United Nations to draft a convention on genocide. He did this in 1946, drafting the resolution and personally meeting with delegates to encourage them to sign.
1: Obviously, through this entire process, his amazing fluency with languages was extremely helpful. Panama, Cuba, and India agreed to sponsor this resolution, which the General Assembly adopted on December 11th, 1946. It read in part, quote, genocide is the denial of the right of existence to entire human groups, as homicide is the denial of the right to live of individual human beings. Such denial of the right to existence shocks the conscience of mankind, resulting in great losses to humanity in the form of cultural and other contributions represented by those groups and is contrary to moral law and the spirit and aims of the United Nations.
0: The resolution went on to affirm that genocide is a crime which the civilized world condemns, and invite the member states to enact legislation to prevent and punish genocide. It recommended international cooperation and requested the Economic and Social Council to do the necessary research to draw up a convention for the next General Assembly.
1: A UN resolution isn't binding, so the next step was to draft a convention, which is a formal agreement among UN member states. In other words, it's a treaty. The UN Secretary General appointed Lemkin to draft this convention. Lemkin had gotten a job teaching at Yale, and he took a leave of absence to do it. Henri Donadieu de Vabre of France, the former judge at the International Military Tribunal, and Vespasian V. Pella of Romania, president of the International Association of Penal Law, were part of the drafting process as well.
0: The process of drafting this convention was a long series of back and forth and compromises, sometimes because of disagreements among these three men and sometimes because of lobbying by the nations that would ultimately need to ratify it. The treaty was not retroactive, but a number of U.N. member states had ongoing issues that might be described as genocide. For example, Lemkin thought the convention should apply to political groups, but if it did, it would not have the support of the USSR, which had been carrying out systematic political persecution for decades.
1: The United States was also concerned about the idea of cultural genocide as it might relate to Black Americans even though this was during the civil rights movement and racist violence was ongoing, it seemed unlikely, potentially, that the U.S. would be charged with trying to exterminate people of African descent, given that their population was increasing rather than decreasing But the idea of cultural genocide was another matter entirely. So the United States was not likely to support the convention if it included cultural genocide.
0: And as a side note, in 1951, the Civil Rights Congress presented a 200-plus page paper titled We Charge Genocide, the Crime of Government Against the Negro People, which did argue that the U.S. government had committed genocide. But that didn't go anywhere. There are also allegations that Lemkin himself was dismissive of this argument, but neither the paper nor the response he purportedly gave are among his personal documents.
1: This negotiation wasn't just about removing language that one or more of the nations was wary of or wouldn't agree to. There were also some definitions that some nations wanted to have added but were not added into the final document. As one example, Japan had distributed opium during its occupation of China, so China wanted narcotics distribution to be included as a component of genocide. As this
0: was happening, support for the convention was growing outside of the UN. The National Council of Christians and Jews had established a committee for an international genocide convention, with Lemkin its strategist. In September of 1948, the committee submitted a petition to the U.N., which had signatures from 166 non-government organizations, which represented about 200 million people from 28 nations.
1: The end result of all of this negotiation was the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was unanimously approved on December 9, 1948. As was the case with the earlier resolution, Lemkin had individually met with numerous delegates to explain the need for the convention and to encourage them to approve it.
0: Article 1, the contracting parties confirm that genocide, whether committed in time of peace or in time of war, is a crime under international law, which they undertake to prevent and to punish.
1: Article 2 in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Article
0: 3, the following acts shall be punishable. A, genocide. B, conspiracy to commit genocide. C, direct and public incitement to commit genocide. D, attempt to commit genocide. And E, complicity in genocide.
1: Article 4, persons committing genocide or any of the other acts enumerated in Article 3 shall be punished, whether they are constitutionally responsible rulers, public officials, or private individuals.
0: From there, the convention goes on to call on nations to enact their own legislation related to genocide. It calls for persons charged with genocide to be tried in the territory where the acts took place or by an international tribunal. Later articles include a number of definitions and procedures.
1: Lemkin described some of these later articles as Trojan horses. These were things that he thought weakened the overall convention and put it at risk of total failure. Article 14 gave it a 10-year duration, followed by five-year renewals. Article 15 rendered the convention null and void if at any time there were fewer than 16 nations that were party to it. And Article 16 allowed nations to request revisions at any time, with the U.N. General Assembly deciding what to do about that request. Lemkin later said that he really regretted allowing these to be included in the final document, but that he also was not sure that the convention could have made it through another fight about them.
0: Two days after the unanimous vote on the convention, 22 nations signed it, signaling their intent for each of their governments to ratify the treaty. Not long after that, Lemkin was hospitalized. Although doctors never gave him a formal diagnosis, he called it genociditis and attributed it to his exhaustion from having worked so hard on the convention and on getting it passed.
1: As soon as he was out of the hospital, though, he was back at work, lobbying nations to ratify the convention, And this was an ongoing pattern for the rest of his life with cycles of work and advocacy followed by hospitalizations and surgeries. The Genocide Convention came
0: into force on January 12, 1951, which Lemkin described as, quote, a day of triumph for mankind and the most beautiful day of my life.
1: But even then, he still wasn't done fighting for it. Later on in the 1950s, there was a push to create an international criminal court. And part of this discussion involved abolishing the Genocide Convention and folding the prosecution of genocide up under the court. Lemkin once again stopped his other work and lobbied for the Genocide Convention to remain in place. The Cold War ultimately derailed this whole plan and the International Criminal Court was established much later.
0: For much of the time uh, working on the Genocide Convention, Lemkin had been acting as a private citizen. Once the treaty was drafted, he had no official backing and he had no funding. He frequently went hungry and that continued later in his life after the convention had come into effect. He continued to teach and to write books, including an autobiography, But if he wasn't teaching, he was trying to live off $100 a month from the Jewish Labor Committee and a small amount of money he had been granted by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany.
1: He was uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize more than once for all of this, but it was never awarded to him. On August 28, 1959, Lemkin died of a heart attack. He collapsed at a bus stop. He was either on the way to or from a publisher's office to talk about the autobiography that he had been writing, The American Jewish Committee paid for his burial, and only seven people attended his graveside service.
0: He had spent the last years of his life living in the U.S., but he didn't live long enough to see the U.S. ratify the Genocide Convention. Although the U.S. was one of the first 22 signatories, the ratification didn't happen until November 25, 1988.
1: And another thing that Limkin did not live to see is that in the years after this convention came into effect, it really hasn't had the impact that he hoped that it would. He very clearly, sincerely believed that an international law was the only way to both prevent genocide and punish the people responsible for it. But I don't know if you've listened to our, our podcast a lot. You have heard us talk about a lot of things that have happened in the years since then, that fit under various definitions that we read from the treaty earlier. In 2018, in recognition of the 70th anniversary of the Genocide Convention, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, quote, "...since Nuremberg, we have failed to prevent genocide in Cambodia, Rwanda, and Srebrenica in the former Yugoslavia. But in the past two decades, we have at least started to hold perpetrators to account." the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia have all convicted perpetrators for the crime of genocide. The work of these courts reflects a welcome resolve to punish genocide.
0: He went on to note that as of January 2018, there were still 45 UN member states that had not yet become a party to the Genocide Convention and urged them to do so.
1: To end on a more hopeful note, like I said earlier, Raphael Lemkin was just unshakably certain during his lifetime that an international law was what was needed to address this crime. And so to end with a quote from the introduction to his autobiography, which is called Totally Unofficial, quote, I feel grateful to Providence for having chosen me as a messenger boy for this life-saving idea. Do you have some listener mail as well? I do, and it is a lot more um, up- uplifting than what we have just talked about. This is from Mark. Uh, Mark says, Good afternoon, ladies. My name is Mark. I don't usually uh, read people's surnames on the podcast because of privacy, but it becomes obvious. His name is Mark Dumas. The A in his name, his middle name stands for Alexander. I'm a direct descendant of General Dumas. Thank you for the awesome podcast. I'm a longtime listener, but a first-time writer about my family. Two things. I don't know if you have seen the YouTube video of the French government moving the body of Alexandre Dumas Père to the Pantheon. It's pretty amazing. Second, from General Dumas to my generation, there has been a Dumas in uniform in every generation, either for France or for the U.S. All of us have been Black. We have served in every major campaign from the Civil War to the War on Terror. And then he goes on to list how he served, his father served in World War II, grandfather World War I, ticking back uh, all the way to the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, which we have a previous podcast on. And then that particular member of his family, Mark, goes on to say, quote, his father was Alexandra Dumas Fies. And here we are. Keep up the good work, Mark. Thank you so much, Mark, for this awesome letter. We don't often get Uh, letters from people who are directly descended from the people that we uh, talk about on the podcast. He sent this after the episode came out on Thomas Alexandre Dumas, which uh, he had not yet had the opportunity to hear us talk about that footage of moving Alexandre Dumas Père's body. So thank you again, Mark, for sending us this awesome email. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're also all over social media at Missed in History, and that is where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together, and a searchable archive of all of our episodes. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. work.